I love stories where the where the good guys win, don't you? I mean, I I, I, I was thinking of of a number of of illustrations I could give you, but um, I think one of the first movies that I that I ever remember seeing about Chuck Norris is basically the same movie that every that Chuck Norris ever does, right? He is overwhelmed, outnumbered, outgunned, and and they've just been absolutely abusive and mean to him, and then he just comes out and just mows everybody down, right? And the good guy wins. I, I love movies. I love stories. I love the stories in the Old Testament where Israel has their back against the wall and is outnumbered. I love the story of Gideon where he's, da- he's hiding down inside of the, of, the, uh, of the cistern threshing wheat because he's so afraid. And, and the angel of the Lord shows up and says, Hail, mighty man of valor. And, and Gideon says, You talking to me? I mean, I'm hiding down in here. I mean, we're being, uh, we've, we've been overrun. And God says, yeah, but, but you're a mighty man of valor because, because I'm going to be the one that will carry the day. I love the end of Revelation that I've already read, that you've already read, where God's people are backed up and all of the armies of the world come against them and you can just see it and it's in the, it's in the, the Jezreel Valley and all of a sudden the, the, the clouds roll back like a scroll and here comes the King of Kings and Lord of Lords on the white horse and He speaks and a sword comes out of His mouth, His literal words, slay the enemies. I mean, there is a picture of the good guys winning. And it seems the meaner the antagonist and the more helpless the hero, the greater that, that you and I, that you and I celebrate. It's an amazing thing. That's just something about overcoming that, that encourages us. And I would say that's really a good way to frame the story of the church at Smyrna. It, it's, a, it's a really good way to just kind of set our minds about, about the good guy ultimately winning, but at the moment in which we're going to read the letter, the good guy's back is against the wall facing overwhelming odds, and, and it's going to get worse before it gets right, not better. God doesn't make things better, God makes things right. And sometimes they get worse before He does that, and that's what we're going to see in this, in this letter this morning. Smyrna is a church that's being pressed down. They're being singled out by, by the Roman population, about 200,000 people in this, in this city. They're being afflicted by the Jews, and they're suffering. And to these believers, and to any of you here this morning, that are facing something that you can't handle on your own, to any Christian that's facing suffering or, or affliction, Jesus sends His second message, His second edict. It's been said that we are either in a trial, coming out of one, or heading into to one, and I would say that, that that's probably true. And regardless of where you're at on that paradigm, in a trial, coming out of one, heading into one, Jesus wants you to remember that He has overcome. And that because He has overcome, you and I have the promise of overcoming. If you're not already there, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ... 
And Jesus gives this very short message. There's only four verses, beginning in Revelation 2, verse 8. There are only four verses to the church of Smyrna. But it contains some very precise encouragement on how not just to survive trials or suffering, but overcome in Christ. It's unlike the other letters because it it doesn't contain a rebuke. Now, I know this is just the second letter, but you're going to start picking up patterns as we continue along. And, and, and Smyrna, the, the, the edict or the, the message to Smyrna is very unlike the rest because it doesn't contain a rebuke or identify a weakness in the church. Most of the letters you're going to hear, you know, this is what you're doing good, but I have this against you, so do this. Well, you don't hear I have this against you at all in the, in the, the letter to, to Smyrna. Smyrna and Philadelphia are the only two of the seven that don't have a correction in them from the Lord. And I think it's very interesting to note that, that they're both, both Smyrna and Philadelphia, are the smallest and least influential of all of the seven churches. The two churches that have no rebuke or no issue are the two smallest and least influential. Did you know the Bible doesn't even record the founding of the church at, at, at Smyrna? This is the only place that Smyrna is mentioned in the Bible. Now, we can speculate. The Apostle Paul, uh, whenever the gospel is preached throughout of all of Asia, Asia he probably, probably went here. It's only 35 miles from Ephesus, so the church planting that's happening in Ephesus is probably going up to Smyrna. But I think it's important to note that in our day of, of megachurch, powerful ministry, to remember that when you're defining spiritual success, it's more important to be faithful than powerful. While this church was small, the, the, city was, the city was big. You can see Smyrna here at the top. It's, it's also a port city. You see this little port right here? Just like it was in, uh, in, in Ephesus. It is the modern-day Izmir, Turkey, and it dates all the way back to 3000 B.C. And these are some of the ruins there. Actually, you won't find a lot of, of amazing ruins or pictures if you would go home and and look up Smyrna because there's still a, a large city there and, and, and a number of the, of the sites are covered up by, by, the, by the city. It was once destroyed by invaders. It was, it was uh, commanded to be rebuilt by Alexander the, the Great before the time of Christ. It's a, it's a significant place. It's, it's, it claims to be the birthplace of Homer. It, it, it had the, its claim to fame like... Um, uh, like Ephesus had the great uh, temple uh, to to Diana, the, Smyrna claimed the streets of gold, which had the the, the temple of of Sybil on one end and a and a temple of Zeus on the other. You probably, if you know anything about church history, you'll remember that Smyrna is the place where, in about fifty years, Polycarp is is burned at the stake alive for the persecution. So the persecution doesn't stop here. The persecution continues, and one of the great testimonies in the Fox's Book of Martyrs and others is Polycarp. The outline to here, here's a picture of, uh, of uh, uh, an artist rendering what it may look like. You have the port that's there, and it was a it was a large 
It was a large city. The outline of these four verses is, is pretty straightforward. It begins and ends with Jesus and has details about the church sandwiched in the, in the middle. In verse 8, you have the church's description. In verse 9, you have the church's situation. Christ says to his church, I know the situation that you're in, just like he knows your situation this morning. Then he declares the church's coming affliction, what's going to come upon them, and then he comes back to himself and challenges them to, to overcome. Let's see how he, how he opens the message here in verse 8. Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. It says, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Jesus introduces himself with two titles. He is the first and the last, and he is the, he is the one who was, who died and came to life. He's the eternal one, and he is the resurrected one. Now, all of these letters have similarities. They all have an introduction. They all have an evaluation of the circumstances. And they all have words of, of encouragement and, and some rebuke and some counsel and some warning. But one of the unique things to each letter is each letter has a different description of Jesus Christ. Jesus describes himself to those churches specific to their, to their circumstance. And so in this case, he's the eternal one. He's the first and the last, and he's the one who died and, and came to life. And, and Christ's description is from the vision that you've, we've already went through. All of the seven letters have, have a description of Christ that's from the vision that's rooted in the Old Testament promise. Jesus is the one who was promised. He is the God of Daniel. He's the one coming in clouds. Every single introduction, description about Jesus is from the vision that we've already seen that John saw, and it's also for the church. It's reminding them of Christ's sufficiency in their, in their circumstance. Each description of Jesus, like this one to Smyrna, matches the exact need of every church fitted to their individual circumstances. Jesus specifically chooses titles to meet the issue that the church was, was facing. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is who you need because he is exactly what you need no matter the circumstances. And that's what he's saying to his, to his church. The title here that I am the first and the last who was dead and came to life is, a, is an encouragement and an example the first and the last, the title declares that God is the eternal one. He's the governor over history in the future. He's the governor over the first. That's the history. He's the governor over the future. That is the last. He, he is the eternal one. He's not bound by time. This comes from Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, old Jacob, even Israel, whom I've called, I am he. I am God. I'm the first and I'm the last. I'm the God who spoke the world into existence. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. I'm the God that David worshipped. And I am the God of Revelation. I'm the one who will ultimately set upon the great white throne. I'm the one who is sovereign over history and over the future. He is the God of the ages. 
And that's an encouragement to Smyrna because they're going to face something very difficult in the future. Isn't it an encouragement to you as you face the unknown? The future is unknown to us, but it's not unknown to God. He's already there. Isn't it an encouragement to you to know that He is the timeless one, that He is the God not over not only history but also over the future? It is greatly encouraging. He's the eternal one in, in relation to time, and He is the resurrected one in relation to life. Smyrna is going to face something in the future that they haven't faced yet, and for some of them that's going to mean death. So they need to know that Jesus is, is God over time, and they also need to know that Jesus is master over death for whenever they face death. Can you imagine facing death apart from the promise of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People do it all the time. What is that passage that we quote, that Pastor Brody quoted yesterday at at Jennifer's homegoing service? We sorrow, but we don't sorrow like other people who have no hope, who are without hope, and the resurrection is the great hope. Jesus says to His church, some of whom are going to face death, Death through persecution, he says to us, who are all going to face death at one point, I'm the one who was dead, but I came to life. And you're the one who will die, but if you know Jesus Christ, you will come to life because of, because of Him. The verbs that he used here, uses here for was dead, came to life, they're, they're past tense. It's the pointing to the, the death and resurrection of Christ. The eternal one, over time and history, became incarnate and was made dead. It's a reminder that even Jesus was willing to subject himself to rejection and persecution and ultimately resulted in his death. Can you see the parallel to this church? He came into his own and his own received him not. And yet the grave could not hold him. And that wasn't his end. He lives. And so too, the believers at Smyrna will suffer, but they're going to find the ultimate victory in Christ. They're going to walk the same path that their Savior walked, but it doesn't end in the grave. It comes out of the grave. And that's exactly what Jesus is declaring to them. He is reminding them who He is. Does God need to remind you who He is this morning? I mean, I know you know who Jesus is. I know you have a lot of intellectual knowledge. I know that you could probably quote great passages in the Bible. There's probably some of you can remember Bible stories all the way back to the time when you were you were four or five years old. But but what I'm saying is, does God need to remind you who He is specifically because of the specific need that you have this morning? Jesus is exactly who you need because He's exactly what you need no matter the circumstances you're facing, in life or in, in death. He's sufficient. That's what he's saying to them. I'm sufficient. The one who's writing to you is sufficient. And I also know your situation or your circumstances. Look at what he says here in verse 9. I know. Now, there's a lot of things that we think we know. Have you ever talked to somebody who's really young, and they're talking really boastful and boisterous as if they know everything. 
and you've probably got about 20 years or 30 years on them, and you're sitting there just smiling, being kind, thinking, <laughs> just wait. You ever talk to somebody who has one child, somebody who has no children, and, and says, i tell you what, when I have kids, they're not going to act like that, and you've got four or five of them, and you're just sitting there going, <laughs> just wait. Yeah. Jesus knows. Jesus doesn't have to learn information like we learn information. Jesus doesn't have to learn anything about you. You don't have to tell God anything about yourself. He knows every single thing about you. He knows you, and He knows the circumstances that, that you're in. And He says He knows three things here about the church. Look, if you would, at verse 9, I know your, your, your works, tribulation, poverty, but you are rich and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews. He knows their tribulation, he knows their poverty, and he knows they're, they're being slandered. Now, I want you to notice what he says, I know your works, your tribulation. Your poverty, it's, it's all connected together. It's a unified struggle. And it's coming upon them as a church family. And I think that's important to remember. We're one in Christ in all of our circumstances. The Bible tells us rejoice when one of us rejoices, weep when one of us weeps. And he says tribulation. They were under pressure. It describes the basic problem that the church faced. And the two other words, poverty and blasphemy, describes the aspects of those of that persecution. They, they were persecuted by their enemies, and that was directly tied to their poverty and being evil spoken of. Think general and then think specific. I think when we think of the word tribulation or persecution, it's, it, it can become overused. We can become out of touch. In, in our society. I mean, when we talk about persecution, we rarely have connection to it. I can remember one time at Timberlake, I think, that, that we, the closest that we've ever come as a church to facing genuine affliction or persecution and slander, and that was with the, the little girl at, at TCS. It was patently false. People lied. Others believed it. Great difficulty was unleashed. People threatened to take away livelihood and, and do whatever they could to destroy the school, but God prevailed. In fact, one of the reasons we're busting at the seams is because God prevailed in that situation. Well, that wasn't the case for Smyrna. They were in affliction, and it brought poverty and blasphemy, slander. The believers that were in that were in Smyrna, were experiencing a scarcity of resources. If you want to use the TCS example, the students didn't come. New people didn't rise up and say, praise God for the way that you handled that with grace and truth. I'm putting my kid there. That's not what happened in Smyrna. People left them. It was a shortage. They lacked. You might be able to relate to this better than the than being persecuted for your faith. If you've ever felt the pressure of knowing that you have bills due and, and you have no resources to cover them and, and you have no credit, you have no place to go, it's, there's amazing pressure. It consumes you. You might even lay awake at night. 
and the believers were feeling this, this pressure. They were feeling that pressure not because of bad choices that they'd made, but because of the good choice to follow Jesus. Now, we're not told specifically why they were facing poverty, but there's a number of, of things that we can know about how Christians were, were persecuted in those days. Affliction, there was destruction of property. When the mobs came, they just they tore up the Christians' homes. They broke their pottery. They burnt their, their places of business. Christians typically came from a poorer class, so they didn't have much to, be, to begin with. James tells us, that God chose them so that they would shame the, the wise of the world. Listen, my brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? They lost their jobs because of a, a pagan atmosphere. This thing's going to go crazy, I think, in a minute. You didn't want to employ people who were Christians if you were in Smyrna because they were pariahs. Think about it if you were in Nazi Germany. Even if you didn't agree with Hitler, you didn't hire a Jew, because it just caused you a whole lot more problems than if you hired another Gentile or somebody who wasn't a Christian. They could have been poor because religious liberties were lost. The, the Judaism was legal in Rome. They were allowed to worship because they were a conquered people, and Rome would allow a conquered people to worship their, their own gods. And so the Jews had a specific dispensation with the Romans. And then Christians were viewed as a sect of Judaism. But the Jews here are pushing them out of the synagogues and rejecting them. And because they were doing that, they lost legal protection. Most likely, though, they were poor for a number of those reasons, plus this, they were generous givers. You can see that in 2 Corinthians. They gave according to their ability and, and, and beyond it. They, they give. It's convicting whenever you think about their scenario. If you, you give based on, on worship or need, then then you don't stop whenever it gets to an uncomfortable, an uncomfortable place. And that's exactly what, what they did. You guys may have to take over back there. My little clicker's messed up. Notice the third word, or the last word there. Tribulation and poverty and blasphemy. It's a word that means slander. It's a concept that's closely related to blasphemy whenever it's used to talk about, to talk about God. Slander to God's people is to blaspheme, is to blaspheme Him. Still don't have anything, guys. Keep going. Keep going. All right. Now you're caught up with me. To slander God's people is to blaspheme Him. And with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to, to be. In Acts 9.4, Jesus said to, to, to Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? He says, I know the blasphemy 
of those who say they are Jews, but but they are, are not. They were being slandered, and slander is closely related to, to blasphemy. Have you ever had someone speak evil about you? Well, if so, just remember what Spurgeon said. If any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him. You're far worse than he thinks you to be. I love that quote by Spurgeon. If someone speaks evil of you, remember that quote. Don't get mad. Be glad that they don't know you for what you really are and can expose you for what you really are. But if anyone speaks evil of you because of Christ, then rejoice because you're in fellowship with your master. So he says, I know. I know your tribulation, your poverty, your blasphemy. I also know your, your coming affliction. Your coming affliction. Look, if you would, at verse 10. Do not, be, do not be afraid or do not fear any of those things which are about, which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Notice that it's future which you're about to suffer. Behold, or indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into, into prison. Now, when I first read that, do not fear. What I would expect to come is, do not fear, because it's not coming. Do not fear. I stopped it before it came, but that's not what it says. It says, do not fear. It is coming. And it's going to get worse. And you say, that's not very encouraging. Well, he's saving the encouragement toward the end. You know, one of, the, one of the, the graces of God is that he tells you the truth about yourself and about your life. You can turn on all kinds of preachers on the TV. You can find them from behind all kinds of pulpits, all kinds of pulpits, and they'll tell you that you're really not that bad. They'll tell you that your life is... is you know, can, can be good if you just have enough faith. And that God loves you and He has a wonderful plan for your life, and He does. But that's the good news, and you've got to hear the bad news before you hear the good news. God tells us the truth. He tells us the truth about our circumstances. He doesn't say if you come to Jesus that your life's going to be a bed of roses and you're not going to have any issues. As in fact, He says if you follow me, in this case it may get worse before it gets right. And it could even end in death. But on the other side of death is eternal life. And this life is a flash in the pan compared to that. Notice what he says here. He says that this persecution that's coming, this coming affliction is imminent and unavoidable. That's the about to. And behold, he says it, it has an impish source. Satan is mentioned twice. He says that you're being blasphemed or slandered by those who are Jews, but who are of the synagogue of Satan. And he says the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. And then he also says that while all that's true, it has an intended purpose. Look at what he says here in verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which are, you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Increasing persecution. They were already facing affliction, and Jesus uses these words that say it's imminent, it's about to, and it's unavoidable. Behold, it's coming for sure. And the source of your affliction has a human and spiritual agent. 
humanly speaking, the slander and trouble came from those who called themselves Jews but were not. I want you to note that God doesn't identify His people by genealogy, but by how they relate to Christ. And Jesus said this to the Pharisees, didn't He? You are of your father, the devil. He said that to the Jews. It is, we're real people in real places, in real acts, and the, yet the one behind their hatred and their deed was Satan. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. Don't be surprised if it slanders you, calls you a bigot or a racist or a homophobe. Don't be, don't be troubled when that happens. It could mean that you're on the right track and God has good purposes in that. It will accomplish a purpose. While Satan means evil, God means good. It has an intended purpose. Christians suffer in the world for many reasons. I think there are five major ones in Scripture that you can just jot down. The first one is discipline. Why would God allow His people to suffer? What does it mean to be tested? Well, Hebrews 12.6 tells us God chastises us, and when He does, He proves that we are His children. I think this is the one that we too often think about. The minute that we enter into a trial or into suffering, the first thing that comes into our minds is what? I must have done something wrong and God's punishing me, right? I've heard people say that. Pastor, my life is so hard right now. God must be punishing me for something. There must be some sin. I would move that far down the list. You know why? Because God is long-suffering and He would much rather you turn on your own rather than Him have to put a bit or a bridle in your mouth and pull you back in the right direction. He would rather you turn to Him. Yes, it's possible that, that your difficulty is being caused by your sin, but that's not what's happening in Smyrna. And that might not be what's happening in, in, in your life. The second one is preventive. Paul's thorn was to keep him from a greater sin. Paul said he had a, had a thorn in the flesh. He was prevented from doing what God knew he would do if he didn't have the difficulty. Your suffering may be a thorn in your flesh. Don't assume that all your restrictions and limitations in life are bad and say, oh, if I just had, if I just had a little more money or a little better health, then I might do more for, for God. Don't assume every contrary wind that makes you lower your sail is evil. It just might be God keeping you off the reef that you cannot see. Now that is a good quote to write down. The limitations that suffering or difficulty brings may be there to protect you from your own destruction. You don't believe me that God does that? Just read the Tower of Babel. What happened whenever men were unrestrained? And what did God do? He scattered them so they wouldn't destroy themselves because He's gracious. It's a greater testimony is a possibility. Acts 9.16 says, Paul would suffer great in many things for God, from Saul to Paul, and it would, he would be a testimony for him. Your cancer, though not caused by God, may be your platform to be used by God. Your spouse's sin, though grieving to Christ, may provide a great ministry for you to testify to others. You ready for another good quote? It won't be up on your screen, so you have to listen. God doesn't make the mess, but He knows how to turn a pig into bacon when it makes a wallow in your life. Education. Education. Tribulation, work of patience, Romans 5, 3 says, tribulation, 
works, maturity. The things that would remain unlearned in our lives without suffering. You may never learn the fullness, and I may never learn the sufficiency of Christ if I'd never been hungry or lacked. Oh, you know God will provide. You know it from the Bible. You know it from other people's stories. But whenever you pray because you have nothing and you really have nothing and God comes through, it's an unshakable moment. And it's also a privilege. Number five, it's a privilege. We're not to suffer as an evildoer, but those who truly suffer for Christ are associated with His suffering, and that's a great privilege. You're never more like your Savior than when you love and when you give. God loves and God gives, and you're never more like your Lord than when you're falsely accused and persecuted for His namesake. For His namesake. And in Smyrna, in their case, what was coming was imprisonment. Look at verse 10. Don't fear any of these things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Imprisonment was coming. And it was for the purpose of testing. And you will have tribulation. You'll have this affliction, this white, hot affliction for ten days. Symbolic for a short period. And God will provide a way of escape. Be faithful until death. For some, that way of escape will be death. And that leads us to the final, the final point, Christ's challenge to overcome. Jesus gives two commands in these last two verses. He says, do not fear and be faithful unto death. Do not fear, fear not. Do not falter, be faithful and do it. Unto death, do not fail. Finish it. There's only two commands there, but I'm giving you three points because that faithful is unto death. Fear not, be faithful, and finish it. Don't fear. In verse 10, don't fear any of those things which are about to come. Don't fear any of those things which are in the future, even though you're experiencing bad things right now. Don't fear the fact that it's going to get worse. It's a precise command to cease from something. You know, I only fear... I was thinking about this. When, do you, when are you afraid? When am I afraid? I only fear when I don't want to lose something or I'm unsure what I'm standing for. I only fear whenever I don't want to lose something. When I fear... Losing it. And I really want it. I really want to keep it. I really want to hold on to it. My reputation. My being right. My stuff. My time. Whatever it might be. My, my you fill in the blank. I, I, I fear when something's going to come, if it's going to take it away from me. And I also fear when I'm unsure of what I'm, I'm standing for. Is this what the Lord wants me to do? Or is this not? Is this... Am I on the Lord's side or am I not on the Lord's side? I would say if you fear losing something, it's probably a sure sign you you might not have relinquished the rightful owner to begin with. And you must relinquish ownership. And I think that's what Jesus is calling the church at Smyrna to do. Don't fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Your mind. Relinquish ownership. 
And then I think you have to not only relinquish ownership to obey this, but you have to settle the question. Is Jesus Lord or is He not? Choose this day whom you'll serve. Is He Lord or is He not? Perfect love casts out all fear. To experience the perfect love of God, there is no fear. If He's yours, you have nothing to fear. Because anything you have in Christ can never be taken away from you. If they take everything from me, I still have God. I can never lose Jesus. Nothing can take that relationship from me. Do not fear. And do not falter and finish it. Be faithful unto death. You and I may not die in our suffering or in our affliction for Jesus. Somebody, someone said, having a mean tweet made about you on Twitter is not persecution, okay? You and I may not die in our suffering, but Jesus calls us to be faithful until the end, what, whatever the end is, whatever the storm is. The trial may not kill you, it may not imprison you, but whatever it takes, be faithful and don't quit. See it through. Because there's a promise for overcomers. Look at the promise and the reward. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Positive side of the coin, I will give you the crown of life. Saying the same thing, the negative side of the coin, you will not be hurt by the second death, which is the lake of fire. What promises from the Christ who is exactly who you need in whatever you're facing. And because He has overcome, you can overcome in Him. Would you bow your heads? Do not fear. Do not falter. Do not fail. Or something you're afraid of? You may be afraid of the very last thing that Jesus states there, that you're not going to receive the, the crown of life, or that you may face the second death. Is Jesus Lord? Is He Savior? Maybe you, you know He is, but there's something that you fear, losing. Is it because you, you haven't relinquished ownership of it? You'll never find freedom being weighed down by the, the weights of the world. Lay aside every weight and the sins which doth so easily beset us. Relinquish ownership and choose this day whether Jesus is Lord even over that circumstance that you're, that you're afraid of. You can identify with the, the Smyrnans to a certain level. You can prepare. If you're not in persecution, 
I think you can also consider, as you hear a message like this, consider how many compromises I've already made to avoid difficulty. How many compromises are you tempted to make on a regular basis to avoid difficulty? Well, Jesus says be faithful and endure. We can endure great trials if we keep our eyes on the one who was dead but came to life and promises us crowns at the Bema seat one day.